It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Running On Emotion. I'm Alistair Eakin, and I've been speaking to some of the biggest names in British sport. It's a podcast about the role of emotion in sport, from pride to fear, from anger to joy, and all stops in between. Those of us that love sports live it and breathe it. We feel it. It reaches deep down into our body and soul and elicits every feeling imaginable, from despair to elation, from vulnerability to anger. Whether we're playing sport, coaching it, watching it, or listening to it, our emotions drive our every response and relentlessly keep us coming back for more. I've broken these feelings down one by one so that we can talk to those at the elite end of sport to see how emotions affect them, motivate them, and limit them. Clearly, it's not a definitive list, it's just my list, and there are plenty of other emotions which no doubt merit the same scrutiny. But for now, I hope you enjoy this 12-part journey into the emotional psyche of some of our most talented, most successful, most articulate sportsmen and women. It's my pleasure to talk to them all. For this first episode, we're going to look at the emotion associated with pride. You'll be hard-pressed to meet a top-flight sportsperson who isn't proud. Proud of their journey to the top, proud of their roots, their influences, their accomplishments, and rightly so. For most of us, pride in our work is linked to success, and sport is no different. It's broadly seen as a very positive emotion. It acts as a spur. But it comes from different places for different people. It mobilises them in vastly different ways. And of course, on occasions, it can swing from a positive emotion to a negative one, with consequent effects both on and off the field of play. My guest is a man who embodies the notion of sporting pride. There is literally no one else I'd rather talk to about this emotion and no one better placed to discuss it. When he sang the national anthem in front of a packed stadium, tears would stream down his face. His heart was almost visible, popping through the confines of that white shirt emblazoned with the red rose. It was clear to everyone that every part of him was committed to the cause, that he had a powerful motivation, and there are very few athletes who actively use emotion to fire their performances in the way that he did. He's a former England rugby captain who won 85 caps for his country, a World Cup winner, and a three-time tourist with the British and Irish Lions. I'm also happy to declare an interest here and uh, let you know that he's a good friend of mine. He's a colleague at BT Sport. He is, of course, the one, the only, Lorenzo, Bruno, Nero, Delaglio. Uh, Lawrence, you're not often called by all of those names mm. in one go, but it seems like a good place to start. That, that, is, that is quite something, isn't it, to be given those names from the off? Well, you, it is. And um, maybe when I was younger, I didn't think quite the same way. I thought they were quite strange. Lorenzo, Bruno, Nero, Delaglio. But yes, listen, I mean, it's very Italian. And when people look at me, they probably think that I'm not very Italian because I look on the outside very Anglo-Saxon. But uh, 
my father's first generation Italian, my mother Irish. And I always said to people, if you're half Irish, half Italian, that makes you quite a dangerous Englishman. (laughs) (laughs) Because obviously I was born here in England. So uh, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, if we're here to talk about emotion, I think I was certainly born with a lot of it. Because I grew up in a very, uh, contrary to what people may understand about rugby or the stereotype about the sport of rugby, being sort of white, middle-class, elitist. I I came from a very working-class background. My father was an Italian immigrant, arrived here as a waiter in the 1950s. My mum did a million jobs from the East End of London, from being an air stewardess to a chauffeur. So, you know, very, very humble background. But also, I was very conscious of my Italian heritage in my upbringing. We had olive oil, balsamic vinegar, and lots of other things in our house about 40 years ago, you know. It's, uh, the, the, You're ahead of your it, time. Yeah, well, I mean, it, just in terms of the Italian influence, I mean, and and also the the outward displays of affection and, and emotion, and you, you can't run away from that. You know, I used to get picked up from school. You know, obviously, the maybe not during these COVID times, but pre-COVID, the two kisses on the cheek were becoming quite a thing in the UK, but in Europe and certainly in Italy greeting each other emotionally and outwardly in front of everyone was was very normal and very natural. And I remember being picked up from school from the age of sort of six or seven by my, my father and my mother, and there would be this kind of hug and this emotion. And the rest of the schoolmates would look at me and think I was mental or something. You know, what are they doing? It's very British not to be outwardly emotional, whereas actually, on the contrary, from Europe, it's very, you know, particularly Italy, it's totally the opposite. We'll talk about your, your family background in a little bit. I, I was going to start with a quote from your book, from the foreword of your book. It's written by Sean Edwards, uh, once your coach at WAS, of course, and a man who's gone on to, to great things subsequently with Wales and the Lions. But he, he wrote in the foreword, in the beginning, before money and fame and all those lovely things, why did we play competitive sport? We did it to make someone proud. I know that's why Lawrence Delalio did it. It's a feeling that produces an emotional performance. And down through the years, Lawrence has given us a lot of those. I was going to say that what he does on the field comes from his heart, but it's deeper than that, more like it comes from the heart of his psyche. So how accurately, in your mind, does that reflect who you were and and perhaps even who you are now? I think there's two things. I mean, sport is, is inherently emotional. It is emotion. It's about love. It's about hate. It's about every emotion in between. That is the essence of sport. It's obviously built on rivalry. But if you're a participant of sport, if you're a sports fan, if you're a follower, it's incredibly tribal, uh, particularly the sport that we chose to follow. But, you know, humans like, like to pick sides in anything. Very rarely do they not pick sides unless they're from Switzerland or something. I don't know, maybe it works differently over there. But, but certainly in sport, it is about, it's, it's about picking teams. And, and so I would say that it, it, sport is about emotion and it creates so many different emotions. I would agree to uh, wholeheartedly with Sean. He, he was very emotional. And I, I think you, you find this hook when you go out and play sport emotionally and it's the connection between what's going on in your heart and what's going on in your head. Maybe I'm... You know, I was one of the first players to play professional rugby. Maybe the, the players approach it very differently now. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, maybe it becomes something that they're maybe a little bit more programmed to do. But um, if you think about the sport of rugby, it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite a physical game. You know, it's quite a challenge to get yourself into that arena every single week, you know, week in, week out, putting your mind and body through the sort of physical challenge and emotional mental challenges that that sport presents to you. And you have to do that collectively with other people. Now... 
It's not quite as dramatic as going into battle and, and losing your life, but it's not far off it. You know, no one dies in a game of rugby, but if you don't do your job very well, you get hurt and, you, and your teammates get hurt. So I think you have to constantly find ways of taking yourself to a, an emotional place that, where you can perform to the very best of your ability. And you've got to take people often along that journey with you. Now, whatever you need to do that to bring out that performance in yourself, whether it's something that you need to think about, whether it's a connection you need to make. Um, I've always tried to do that with my performances. And uh, Sean and I were, were two peas from a pod, really, brought up, you know, Catholic background. Um, so there's a spiritual th- presence going on there. Both had, sadly, had a bit of tragedy in our lives. He lost his brother, very sadly, in a, uh, in a car accident. I lost my sister. So we, we were connected in that way. And, uh, you know, yes, there's the technical side of the game, which is really important, but actually... If you don't bring the right level of emotion, particularly to a game like rugby, but I would say the same in, with any sport, it doesn't matter how technically gifted you are, you're going to get beaten. And that's one of the beauties of the sport is that actually teams that are not as technically efficient or not as talented in terms of their individuals or collective skill can still overcome those with, with all of that talent because they're able to connect and find the right emotional kind of hook that connects what's going on in their heart with what's going on in their head. Were you always like that? At what stage did emotion begin to play a big part in in your sport? I mean, as you were a, a little boy playing yeah. sport, did you feel emotion played a part even then? Yeah, I, I think it did. It, it does play a part because you either win or you lose. And therefore, there is only two emotions. There's agony or ecstasy. You're either really unhappy or you're really happy. Now, maybe there's different parts along that ruler. You know, I was only ever really upset if I lost or really happy when I won. (laughs) Some people are able to control their emotions and be a little bit less happy than me. And maybe that's a a skill that I learned over the years. And other people on the flip side are able to control their emotions when they lose. You know, I always say to people that to be a winner and to be a serial winner, you have to detest losing at the highest level. If you detest losing, then you know, it's not just about a game. It's more than a game. It's, it's, it's about you. It's your representation of yourself. You have experiences through your life away from the sports arena or the, the battlefield or whatever you want to call it that I think do impact on your character and your performance on the field. And I think that's inevitable. As much as you try and hide away and try and say that I'm a different person off the field than I am on the field, there is certainly a correlation there and you know I had a very difficult time um, when I lost my sister on the uh, on the Marchioness riverboat disaster uh, you know that experience is inextricably linked to my rugby career without a shadow of a doubt I joined WAS at the age of 18 in 1990 I did so because I needed to find some purpose some direction in my life I was channeling my energies in the wrong direction and I needed to do that to help my mother and father who were really struggling as well and from the minute I walked in the door Wasps and the club that I joined gave me a real sense of, of belonging, of community, of family. I felt spiritually I'd arrived in the right place. It was just about people putting their arms around you and saying, look, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, you're very welcome here. And it really helped me to rehabilitate myself. So there's no doubt that I used the, the sort of emotional journey that, that Wasps gave me to, to really spearhead my performances moving forward and that's probably one of the reasons why I I never really moved to us I spent 20 years at the same club I wasn't really driven at that time by money or the contracts that were put under your nose but I was there for 
a lot of reasons and, and probably emotionally and spiritually I felt it was a journey that I, I needed to take. Yeah, the, the club clearly really, really important to you. Um, can we talk a, a little bit about your parents? Quite obviously they have been central uh, seemingly to your sense of pride. Um, if we start with your mum, Eileen, ninth of 10 children from the East End of London, you've mentioned incredibly hard working, started work at 15 years old, uh, very loving of course as well. When she sadly died, what, 12 years ago, you said she was the cornerstone of your life. She showed uh, courage and determination that both humbled and inspired you and showed an unflinching pride in our country, which made you proud and will stay with you forever. I mean, most mothers do, Lowell, but she clearly had a profound impact on you. 100%. I mean, listen, I'm lucky enough to uh, to have been given two things in my life from my parents, which I'd like to think and hope that every young person is able to get. But I know from my own experiences that that's not true. But one is unconditional love, which is, you know, I know is a, an easy thing to say. But when I say that, I, I genuinely mean it. I mean, no matter who came knocking on the door, no matter what I did wrong, unconditional love and help and support in whatever way, whether that be outward displays of emotion, I was, I felt that I grew up in an environment that I was incredibly well loved. And the other thing was just this amazing and powerful belief system that you could go out there and conquer the world and, and anything is possible and anything is achievable. And I think for emotion and pride, the, the word you mentioned there, I mean, she was a young lady who grew up in the war, don't forget, but you know, all of our parents grew up in the war. And I think that connection with pride maybe never leaves you you know what that generation had to go through was um was unbelievable and also the sense of the communities that they grew up in she was from the east end of london the east end of london was a very different community to maybe what it is now um and it really was a a family a family that that got through the hard times got through you know but but celebrated the good ones pretty well as well so uh, yeah, I've always felt that kind of sense of, of family, of love, of nurturing as well. Um, I mean, my mother adopted another child. You know, anyone was welcome at the door. There was always that sense that the door was always open. And I think the greatest gift she had was that she was able to pass on a lot of positive interactions with everyone. It wasn't just me. You know, I thought she didn't just treat her son or her daughter with, with that sort of feeling. Everyone that came across her would, would leave mesmerized by this kind of force of nature and this kind of ability to to make you feel very positive about yourself which i think is quite a rare gift an amazing gift so i've always tried to say to people after that whatever interaction you have with people on a daily basis weekly basis try and make it a positive interaction and easier said than done appreciated not everyone you know creates the, the right emotions within us but if you can try and make those interactions positive then I think, uh, you know, you, you, you'll go pretty far. And your dad, Vincenzo, arrived from Italy in 1968. I mean, was he from a from a similar vein? Um, yeah, I mean, Italians are strange people. I mean, they, he arrived here, I think, purely on a journey to learn English and then obviously stayed here for the rest of his life. He's still, still alive now and has embraced the country, speaks, you know, five languages fluently. And, you know, he was from a quite a traditional family, uh, again, very working, you know, his brother ran the fruit market in Italy, but he certainly worked his way up through the ranks when he arrived here in London and ended up being very successful. But uh, I probably got to know my father much more throughout my rugby career and, and subsequently since my mother passed, um, because as we all know, fathers, rightly or wrongly, had to work pretty hard for, for a period of time to, to bring home the bread. And, and not to suggest that my mother wasn't working, but I didn't, I didn't get to see a lot of my father um, growing up because he was out working pretty hard. But there's no doubt the influence and the emotional influence and, the, and all the other you know, things you'd expect from an Italian were certainly there. 
So emotional influence, lots of other fine attributes being instilled at, at quite a young age. Is it fair to say, though, Lawrence, that perhaps the emotional pride you, you felt didn't necessarily mean an emotional intelligence at that point? There's an emotional pride in representing, you know, your club, your country, or your school, whatever you're picked for, your local team. I, I always had that. I always felt a sense of belonging. Emotional intelligence is about understanding people and understanding emotions in not just yourself, but in other people as well. That's something which I think you, you're born with, but also you can learn through your interactions with people. I mean, you have to listen to be able to have emotional intelligence. You can't just talk yourself all the time, but you have to feel it as well. So, yeah, I would regard myself as having a strong emotional intelligence, I think, you, you, and a sense of what, what other people are, are thinking, sometimes even before they're thinking it, you know. And that's a good thing to have, particularly in a, in a sporting environment or in a changing room, because uh, you've got to feed off each other's emotions as well. And, you know, often a, putting an arm around someone or saying the right thing is, is nice, but often not saying anything at all is equally as effective. I'm surprised by, by a lot of my peers because they all see me as this sort of guy who was in the changing room shouting and screaming, and occasionally I was because occasionally you have to, but actually I think it's outside of the changing room that you can really learn a lot about people because, you know, they're not different people outside the changing room. They might tell you that they are, but they're not fundamentally. So their interactions with you on an everyday basis it's exactly the same person that you're going walking into the changing room with and that you're walking out onto the field with as well. So I, I was fascinated by that. You know, we're all, we're strong at times. We're all vulnerable at times. You know, we, we have good days, we have bad days, um, we have strong days, we have days where we couldn't care less. And I think you've got to understand that and recognise that. Yeah, reading the room and, and reading your teammates, obviously critical in the role that you had. Um can we talk briefly about the, the pivotal moment in your childhood, of course, involving the tragic death of your, your beautiful, very, very talented sister, Francesca? Mm. Um, for those that don't know, she was a brilliant ballet dancer, wasn't she? She was 19, you'd just turned 17, and she went to a party on the River Thames on board the Marchioness, which was subsequently hit by a dredger, and 51 people died that night. Mm. Um, you were supposed to be at that party, yeah, absolutely. weren't you? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was sat around the table with my mother and my sister that night having dinner and, and I was invited on the party and you know subsequently that never one to, <laughs> to turn down many parties at all. So uh, for me to say no it was very odd. I just wasn't feeling great at that time. My sister was heading off there with her boyfriend. So uh, the next thing I remember, my mother woke me up about six, seven o'clock the following morning and said, your sister hasn't come back from, from that party. And I immediately, I could hear the helicopters overhead and I thought, to my, you know, I immediately sort of thought to myself, well, you know, she must be dead. I mean, she was very sensible. She was everything that I wasn't at that age. So, uh, you know, the fact that she hadn't come home told you everything. So, yeah, I think it was just a horrific event. One of those things that blows your your life apart and, and that of your parents. And, and it did. And from that day onwards, life was never the same and, and still never has been the same, really. The first thoughts I had were for my parents were, who were really suffering and as having become a subsequently a parent myself, the understanding of, of, of what that would do to you and the fact that you have to bury one of your own children is just horrific. It doesn't bear thinking about. But also, you know, I was just, as you say, just turned 17 at the time. And, and for a long time, you know, for, uh, I was sort of questioning why, what the purpose of all of this was. And I think slowly but surely you, you start to um, try and come to terms with it. And um, first of all, I channeled my energies in a very different direction and I was getting into all sorts of trouble here, there and everywhere. And then 
I did something, you know, fundamentally which changed the direction of my life. I decided to sort of play rugby and start taking up the sport and it just gave me, it just put its arms around me really and gave me a, a, a support system, a extended family, if you like, to try and put some sense into all of this. But equally, the people I was mixing with weren't necessarily, you know, they were aware of what had happened, but they, it wasn't this constantly being asked every day. So there's no doubt when you talk to me about emotion, losing my sister so tragically, so painfully, I think every time I took the rugby field in some way, shape or form, I wanted to honour her memory, to pay my respects to her, to, to do something to bring my parents back together again because they watched every single game that I played. And try and use that experience as a way of connecting with other people as well that I was playing with, namely my teammates, you know, because we all share in each other's feelings and thoughts. And if we can find the right emotional hooks, then collectively it's a pretty powerful thing. Would it be too trite to to suggest that her loss and, and your grief became that that key spur? You know, did her loss become your why, as people like to say? It's a good question because it, I, I can't give you the other side of the answer. I mean, if she was still alive here, would I have gone on and achieved everything I achieved in my own rugby career? I can't give you the answer to that. I'd like to think I may have been okay, but uh, it, it definitely fueled it without a doubt. I still remember to this day very vividly thinking about her every single time I took the rugby field. But maybe I would have done that if she was still alive. I don't know. Uh, you, you said in your book that, that she was one of the first people that really believed in you and she was reassuring your parents, wasn't she, as yeah. as you got into the odd scrape yeah. here and there. You know, don't worry, he'll come good. He's got so much going for him. Mm. And, and presumably that relationship absolutely dictated that yeah. you took that view every time you took the pitch. Absolutely. As I said to you before, we were very, very close as a family, even though we didn't spend a huge amount of time together, my sister and I, because she was dedicated wholeheartedly to her dancing career um, and was dancing from the age of about five or six onwards. So, uh, you know, I thought sportsmen worked hard but until I saw the you know life of a dancer. I mean, phew, incredible, the sacrifice and the, and the relentless hard work that goes into what they do. We were very, very close, very loving. Yeah, but she was always very kind of caring and said to my parents regularly, look, don't worry, you know, he'll, he'll come good in the end. And uh, she, <laughs> she was right, I suppose, in many ways, uh, still with the odd bit of mischief around as well. But um, I couldn't help but think of her and to this day still do on a regular basis. And you, you went to live on a houseboat, mm. didn't you, on the Thames soon after that? Yeah, and... some people might find that a bit odd, but I felt, you know, quite... I mean, I'm, I'm born and bred in London, uh, even though I've got, you know, lots of roots in, in Ireland and Italy. Francesca died on the River Thames, but I didn't use that as a way of, of meaning that I had to be terrified of the water. She could have died in a plane crash. She could have died in lots of other ways. So, in fact, I, I felt moving into a houseboat, moving on to the Thames, actually made me feel a lot closer to her, really. So, yeah, it was an odd thing to do at the time. It seemed like an odd thing for some people, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. So aside from, from her, aside from your parents, and it doesn't sound like you needed anybody else to give you that kind of emotional fire lull, but were there others who inspired you to play like them, to use emotion as they did, to use pride as they did? I'd like to believe that we're constantly inspired by our colleagues, our friends, our family, our teammates. You know, there's lots of people that, that do things every day that inspire you, that make you proud, that make you feel lucky. And equally, you know, my upbringing through school, never in my wildest dreams imagined I'd end up going to a Catholic private school in north of England. Um, but through my sister's endeavours, that happened. And 
whether I wanted to or not, I went there. And actually, I was inspired by what I saw there, even before my sister passed. My sort of involvement in rugby, that is a big rugby school. So maybe I was always destined to, to be quite inspired by rugby. My coach at school played fullback for England, John Wilcox, in the 60s. He was a pretty tough guy, a pretty strong disciplinarian. So he definitely gave me a lot of insight into what and how you get to the top around a really strong work ethic. But also, uh, going back to the, th- the feelings of emotion, no one likes to lose. And I didn't particularly like losing. I much preferred the experience of winning. So I thought to myself, okay, what I'm going to try and do is make sure that we're experiencing that emotion as much as possible because getting your face smashed in all around the world is, is not much fun, all right? It's, oh, you look good on it. It's overrated, <laughs> overrated, I can assure you. So if you are going to choose that as a sport, you've, you've got to make sure that you have a bit of fun along the way. Yeah, and, and you better mind about and, it. And, and that you're winning more than you're losing. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What about pride in, in the country, mm. Lowell? I mean, everybody who watched England at that time mm. will will remember you at the national anthem, the tears, yeah. and so much, you know, visible emotion. How much of that was was patriotism? Or was it perhaps just a manifestation of, of the emotion that we we've just been speaking about? I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, everyone who knows me knows that I've always wore my heart on my sleeve to a degree sometimes get you know my emotions get me into a bit of trouble not just off the field but with the referee as well you know you can be very outwardly emotional I think that's just part of my upbringing you know sometimes that was a good thing and sometimes it got me into trouble but more more often than not it's a good thing because I was always taught to challenge people a little bit but I think the the national anthem one I felt very proud as I said immensely proud to be English and British English first, by the way, and then British afterwards. I think people have to understand that. And I was constantly confused with um, with why English people are stereotyped into this kind of conservative, unable to demonstrate or display their emotions. Well, I mean, why? What? What? You know, it's it's like if you're Scottish or Welsh, then it's really acceptable to be emotionally, outwardly emotionally patriotic for your country. If you're English, then there's something somehow unacceptable about that, and it's jingoism. And I, I totally disagree. I think English people can be as patriotic as any single other nation, and and so I certainly didn't have a problem with that. I think it was a mixture, to answer your question, of immense pride in being English and representing your country, as I keep telling people, 
is, you know, you're representing the hopes, dreams and aspirations of millions of people. There is millions of people that would love to be able to run out of Twickenham or anywhere in the world with an England shirt on and do that. And if you're representing your country, then you represent them as well. That doesn't mean every single member of the team has to cry, but I think there's a lot of them that probably feel immensely patriotic. And I think there is an immediate connection between you as a player with your teammates and also with the people watching at home, with the people watching in the stadium... And I don't think there's anything wrong with having that emotional connection with people because I think that that makes you perform better. It makes the crowd play their part because they feel that there's an emotional connection with the team on the field. So, uh, yeah, so I think there's a part of me that was absolutely about pride and then the other part of me was about emotion, which was about the death of my sister and about all the, th- the sacrifices that everyone has to make to get you on that rugby field, to get you singing the national anthem, you know, your parents working their fingers to the bone, maybe foregoing their own financial gain to, to, to give you the opportunities to be successful. I think all of those things are all thrown into the mix. So it's a mixture of emotion driven by sacrifice and then patriotism and pride just driven by, I don't know, just that feeling in, uh, inside. And, and did it bother you that teammates of yours perhaps who weren't so obviously emotionally engaged were, were standing alongside you treating it in a very different fashion perhaps they weren't so overtly proud in their approach did that did that bother no, it you it doesn't bother me because we, i think the feeling that they had inside was probably bang on the same but they're just maybe just articulating it or representing it in a different way and uh, what i love about sport but particularly about rugby is that it celebrates difference I mean, you've only got to look at the certain more traditional shapes and sizes of every single person in the team to tell you that it celebrates difference. It doesn't matter who you are, what size or shape you are, there's somewhere, there's a place in the team for you. And, and so I like the fact that it celebrates difference and it's our difference that brings us together as a team. And that's what makes it special. So when you go to war with people, when you go out on the field, you know them better than their own offspring their own parents you know because you get to see them at their very best and at their very worst Uh, you see them dressed you see them undressed literally uh, physically and metaphorically so up close and uh, personal up close and personal so I think you realize that we all have faults and we all have things that we love about each other and you forgive all the faults of course you do because uh, you know that we're all wired slightly differently which makes it very special. Did anyone, and this might be a coach or, or other players, did anybody kind of challenge you about the way you used emotion? Did anyone ever see it as a distraction from the, perhaps the more prosaic elements of, of the sport, scrumming, rucking, mauling? You know, how did the likes of Warren Gatlin or Sir Clive Woodward or, or Sir Ian McGeekin work in tandem with or perhaps even against your approach? I think the, the most successful teams, success and failure but particularly success it's never down to one person's approach or one person in particular and anyone who tells you that is is wrong and and way off the mark the formula for success is the chemistry that you can create between the coaches the players the the individuals the players never used to challenge it they used to clearly buy into it to certain degrees and some would buy into it more than others but as i said it's about bringing out the best in each other you know i think leading teams whether you're a coach or a captain like I was, or even a senior player, is about taking people to places that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to get to themselves. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can can coach them how to be better. You can take them emotionally on a journey that they wouldn't be able to get to themselves, spiritually, whatever. So 
certainly the teams that I played with, the emotion was an enormous part of that success. You know, tactically, you've got to be strong. Technically, you've got to be good, the best you can be. You've got to understand your game plan. You know, all of those things are fundamentally important. But if you're not emotionally in the right place to play the game, you're not going to win. And what I was even more fascinated with is that you know in your heart that there is technically, tactically, and maybe in other ways, a better team in the change room next door. And you look at them and you think, oh, that is a, that is a seriously good team. But you can still find a way of winning. And that is based on emotion because if they're not emotionally right and you're emotionally in a place that takes you to two or three rungs above them, it doesn't matter who's in the change room next door or how good they are, they're not going to win. And I mean, look at England against the All Blacks in the semi-final of the last, just the last World Cup that's been. There's so many examples of a, of a team that on paper maybe were underdogs, but won. Did your, your pride ever diminish while you were playing? I mean, there must have been, there would have been plenty of matches, I'm quite sure, that were something of a grind, you know, when, when your senses aren't as heightened as they would be for a massive showdown or World Cup semi-final or whatever. So were there moments when you just thought, but I, I just don't have it today. Yes, without a shadow of a doubt. And I think, I would hope I'm not alone in that feeling because I'm sure if you talk to a lot of sportsmen and women who've got to the top, it's just impossible. Week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, to take yourself on this emotional roller coaster where you've, you've got to get yourself in this physical and mental emotional state every single week. And then, it, and then come back down and pick up the kids and, and, and be all lovely and normal and human again. And then you've got to do it again every single week. Now, I don't know, most people in their working life, you know, they might have quarterly reports or they might have half-yearly reports or they, they're judged at the end of each year as a sportsman. You're judged every day you train and you're judged every week you play. I think I'd, I'd speak on behalf of every sportsman and woman. It's bloody tough. It takes its toll on you physically takes its toll, well, literally, physically, takes its toll on you mentally and emotionally. Obviously, there's certain games where the natural endorphins are there right from the beginning because you know the importance and the significance of it. There's others that, that aren't. And that's where you've got to use all of the tricks in the book to lie to yourself, to get yourself to a place that you need to get to. In, in certain games, it just happens naturally and it'll happen all week. And the, and the building... And the feeling will, will, will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it, hopefully it'll, it'll break into a crescendo around about three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. That's kind of what you want. Now, that's not something you perfect overnight. You have to get used to that. A boxer, I'm sure, as he gets more mature, as he goes into a ring, he understands how to get himself in the right place emotionally, physically, to, mentally to, to box. I think as you get more experience, you understand your emotions a bit better. You understand the emotions of your teammates a bit better. And you understand how to get yourself in there. But to say that it happens naturally every week would be a lie. You have to use a few tricks. You have to lie to yourself. You have to lie to your teammates occasionally. And you have to create this kind of aura and this feeling, which, um, which is not normal. Yeah. It's not normal, but, but not everybody can do it either. I mean, no, possibly not. Now, I'm not suggesting it's healthy either, by the way, because, you know, it's, ideally you should do things naturally and let things happen naturally and maybe... Maybe the natural process would be, well, if you can't do it, you deserve to lose. But, you know, if losing is not an option, then, you, you know, you've got to find a way of winning. Now, it doesn't mean you've got to be, you know, crying your eyes out at every game because that's not possible or you, you're going to be emotionally up on the ceiling. But all you have to do is be emotionally big and strong enough to win the game. 
you know, more than your opponent. And that's that's the key. And not every game is going to be a 10 out of 10 either. You can search for perfection and there's plenty of players who do that. But you have to be strong enough to admit you're not going to get there every single week. Well, we've concentrated on pride for the most part being a, a force for good in a sporting context. But of course, in life, as we know, there is that saying that pride comes before a fall. And you had yours in 1999 when you yeah. lost the England captaincy. You were the subject of a newspaper sting. The reporters were disguised as potential sponsors, but they subsequently claimed you'd made out you'd dealt drugs as a youngster, amongst other things, and you lost the captaincy as a result. I don't want to be dragging out the minutiae of all of this, but was that a case do you think, of some misplaced pride? Misplaced pride, bravado, uh, stupidity. It was a mixture of all of that, really. Um, it was a crushing blow, but not to me personally, although it did hurt me, but more because I'd let a lot of other people down, particularly my parents. And it was just that brought a lot of pain and hurt and unnecessary pain and hurt to a lot of people through, you know, I don't know quite what I was thinking, whether it was selfishness, whether it was greed, whether it was probably a mixture of a lot of things, ego. Yeah, and it was a particularly bad couple of weeks. I'd just lost the Grand Slam uh, captain in England the week before uh, at Wembley by allowing my pride to make a poor decision on the field. And uh, I learned a very harsh lesson, which um, I put right pretty quickly. And and then I lost, you know, the captaincy off the field. But losing the captaincy is, is a kind of a bit of a sideshow. It, it was the actual event itself that losing the captaincy was a product of what I did. And I accept that. And, and I understand the reasons why that decision was made. But it was really painful because it's very public and it was, you know, just not nice to go through that. I mean, we can all talk about the tactics employed by the journalists to create a story out of nothing, really. But then that's the, the, their modus operandi. Fortunately, uh, I'm here 20 years later and they're not. So, yeah, listen, as an incident, I was very, I was very disappointed in myself. And I think you have to appreciate and you have to accept that we're all responsible for our own actions. So you can't, you can't sort of apportion blame in any other direction other than yourself. And it goes back as a sportsman, to having frank and open and honest conversations with other people, but also with yourself as well. So would I turn back the clock if I had some regrets? That would definitely be one of them throughout my rugby career. I don't have many, but that would definitely be one. The decision I made a couple of days before that at Wembley would be another. Life is not in a straight line. There are bumps in the road, some that are there naturally and some that you create yourself, and you just have to deal with them as they come along and, and recover from them and learn the lessons, I think, more importantly. Um, but it certainly fueled me. And listen, I learned in a lot of very, very uh, big lessons from that. And I'd like to think I was a better person after it. Whilst I wouldn't wish it on anyone, particularly or anyone's family, it was an unnecessary story. But um, I was a better player and, and, and a better person as a result of it. Is there a danger, you think, that, that someone who's pride in their work, it was rugby in, in your case, kind of fails to register the same pride in their personal life. I mean, a life in elite sport is, is privileged, as we know, but it's very tough, as we yeah. know. And a, a single-minded approach on the pitch, it doesn't make life all that easy for those around them quite a lot. There's a learning process in anything. You want to be an architect, you've got to learn for a number of years. You want to be a surveyor, a, a judge, a lawyer, a, a builder. You know, there's a process. I mean, sport's no different. You're not born with all the skills to cope with what the sport and the, is going to throw at you. You've got to learn those over a period of time. And I think uh, you've got to learn them in the most unforgiving environment. You're very public. You've got to deal with a whole range of different emotions that other people don't have to deal with. Loss of form, you know. 
Injury can be short-term injury, long-term injury, selection, other people's opinions. You're in the press every single week. You're being discussed every single week, sometimes by people who know a thing or two about it, sometimes by people who've never, ever experienced it in their lives. And I think it's a very unforgiving environment. And I think that there's no toolkit for that. You know, you've got to you've got to assemble that toolkit over the period of your career. You can get advice from your friends and family, and my mum and dad were very forthcoming with their advice on, <laughs> on on who I should speak to and who I shouldn't speak to. Some of the most successful sportsmen and women are those that are fired and fueled by determination, either to do what I did, which is to honour my sister and to honour my parents or to prove people wrong, to prove the critics wrong. There's nothing wrong with using criticism as a way of inspiring and fueling. I mean, hopefully you should have your own criticism. Since I've retired, one of the things I miss more than anything else is not... I mean, the banter in the change room is one thing, but it's, the, it's just the sheer brutal environment where people put each other on trial. You know, you didn't do your job on Saturday. Would you like to explain yourself? Because, you know, we lost. It's just having that honesty and going, right, we've... We've all agreed on this, and now let's park that for a second, and now let's now let's go forward. And for all your your trials and tribulations, and the ups and the downs, uh, obviously the, the the culmination in two thousand and three of the World Cup win will mean that you're, you're forever loved and admired by England supporters. Mm. It sounds like a stupid question in some ways, but would you still regard that as your as your proudest moment? Externally, I think it's it's the one that everyone remembers. But I mean, you know, equally. I think the journey with that England team was as amazing as the actual culmination of it. I mean, I played for England for 13 years, but the journey from 97 when Clive Woodward took over and a number of us sort of got together in in a group was a six-year journey to 2003. And of the 13 years, that six years was definitely the purple patch in the middle. But, you know, we were ranked number five in the world in 97. By 2003, we got to the top of the world. I was as proud statistically and personally we beat the southern hemisphere 14 times consecutively home and away from 2000 to 2003 that's like beating federer and nadal and djokovic every year twice a year every twice year. a year every year for 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 3 years i mean that's a pretty awesome thing to achieve and i think i'm as proud of that kind of run that consistency and that run as i am of the actual final itself I mean, we just about got over the line in the final. We didn't play great. So, yeah, that was an amazing achievement. But I was as proud of the journey that we've been on because, you know, for me, the journey is not just a a journey of results. There's an emotional journey that, you know, I had my ups and downs that all my teammates had to endure and live through. They had their ups and downs that, that we all had to go through as well. So we knew each other more than just inside centre, outside centre, you know, number eight, number six. You know, we knew each other very collectively, very emotionally, very spiritually and, and uh, very socially as well. When you look back at, at everything you achieved on the field, Lowell, and indeed off it, what would you say to your younger self now? Um, when I reflect and I look back on my own career, you talk about pride. I have enormous pride because it, it, was, it was an extraordinary journey. I never, in my greatest hopes and dreams imagine that I would as a 16 year old sat around the table with my sister one night and then you know if you think about that journey from that moment onwards where it finished up I I never thought that it would end up like that yeah of course there's regrets one or two decisions on and off the field that you know one or two behaviors one or two traits you know that I could have done differently I could have been more humble on occasions could have been more gracious on occasions but I think I'd level that at pretty much everyone that I know 
not just me. Maybe it just comes across a bit bigger with me because I'm quite outwardly emotional. So therefore people see it maybe a bit clearer, but it should never be misconstrued. I mean, so yeah, there's one or two things I change, but not much. Probably had somewhere around about an 80, 85% win ratio, which I think I'd, I'd be pretty proud of really, because when you go back to emotion, there was more ecstasy than there was agony. Yeah, you take that. You definitely take that. Loris, thank you so much Pleasure. for being so open, so honest, so generous with your time as well. It's been a, a fascinating insight into the life and times of, uh, of one of this country's most celebrated sportsmen. You have, you've lived a life, lol. In fact, it feels like you've lived, <laughs> you've lived several of them. And uh, of course, there's much more to come, I hope. We haven't even mentioned your extraordinary work with your foundation. Mm. You've raised millions of pounds for charity, helping uh, young disadvantaged kids excluded from... Yeah mainstream schools you're changing lives every day with that work i'm quite sure your pride in that is just as significant as all your sporting achievements thank you pleasure you've been listening to running on emotion with me alistair ekin an ekin media production for audi if you've enjoyed listening please subscribe like and rate us wherever you get your podcasts our hashtag is running on emotion and you can find us on twitter and instagram sound is by norman goodman and the series producer is andrew sampson Thanks for listening.